morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and these guys are glad to give you one. You can take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 2. We're actually moving to another chapter. One year on the chapter, it's not bad. A couple of things I want to do before we get into to today's message. We as a nation are celebrating Veterans Day weekend, and, and part of what we're going to talk about today is freedom. And I was talking with a couple of gentlemen this week, and uh, I'm one of those goofy people. I, I warned my wife yesterday. We went to some place where we were doing Toys or Tots, and there's Marines standing out there for Toys or Tots. I said, now, Mary, I'm going to go up to him and thank him for his service to the country. Don't freak out. And then we ended up going to a different door, and I didn't get a chance to do that. She goes, you didn't have the nerve, did you? No, she didn't. She didn't. But I, I've, I've done that because I genuinely uh, appreciate veterans, um, those who serve in the military. If you are a veteran of military service, you please stand, or even on active duty now. Thank you. Uh, a lot of what we, uh, particularly during a presidential election, you hear a lot about freedom and change and hope and all those things. And without our veterans, none of that stuff is even possible to talk about. It's still uh, an incredible nation, and we are blessed to be free. Uh, one other thing I do want to mention as we get started. This coming Saturday is our monthly help day at the Bartlett campus, and it'll be really busy because it's November. And again, la the last month, we were if you guys hadn't shown up, we'd have been in big trouble. So. Again, I'm letting you know, reminding you, if it's not on your calendar and you haven't done it, you, you would be blessed. But this Saturday at the Bartlett campus, and we'll start actually giving out food and clothes about 10 o'clock, but they line up. Some of them spend the night on the parking lot. Uh, they'll be lined up at 8 o'clock. So anytime you can get there, you can help get things ready. If you want to come a little later, you can help tear things down. There's just plenty to do, and if nothing else, if you just stand there and watch people get blessed, you will be blessed because you, be honest, make that possible by your giving. And uh, the Lord has just uh, really blessed this ministry. And we've become the largest distributor of the Mid-South Food Bank uh, in this area. We are the number one distributor. And so we get to help a lot of people. And that's just a great thing to do. And, and if not, another thing I would encourage you to do if you get a chance if we're pushing baskets, and it really depends on if we're doing baskets, how many people show up to help. But if you get to be a basket pusher, you, that means you've made it to the top. Now, if you get to be a basket pusher, and as you're going to the vehicle with them, just ask them, how can I pray for you? Even if you don't pray right then and you're not comfortable, just ask them, how can I pray for you? And you will be moved and probably in tears at times when they tell you their stories and realize another thing you'll realize is how blessed you are. And so I just encourage you this coming Saturday at the Bartlett campus, really from about 8 till 1 o'clock in the afternoon, depending on how long it takes to tear it down, just ask somebody around you, not while I'm speaking if you don't mind, but when we get done, just ask somebody around you that's gone 
and just see how, even young people, see how they're blessed just to be there and work for someone else. And then finally, the last thing I want to mention, I want to echo what Peter said about Stan. Um, I've known Stan since, I don't know, seventh grade, maybe. And I could tell you some stories that are, well, those I can't tell you, but I can tell you some, some funny things that have happened to, to Stan and I. We've, I met him, I think it was at Fall Creek Falls, and uh, we were out in paddle boats out in the lake. And you're not supposed to jump in the lake in the paddle boat. And I was the chaperone, and I said, Stan, look, if you jump in, then I'll have to jump in and get you. I was a very good chaperone at that point in time. So, but I taught a junior high Bible study at Central Church, and, and we were doing something at Stan's house, and this was back before we had any of the stuff we have today. Stan and I are a little older. So, we were having this thing at his house, and Central had these, one of these big screen TVs, and I didn't have one. I didn't know anybody that did. So we borrowed this. It was on wheels. So we got Stan's truck. We take it to his house, to do the Bible study, and we're going to watch TV with the junior high boys that I was teaching. And so we're bringing it back to Central Church. I don't know what time it was, 11 o'clock, midnight, or something like that. We're trying to take it in the main entrance at Central Church, and, and I had a key. But what I didn't have was the code to the alarm. And I think, Let's know, we'll just get it in the lobby, and then tomorrow I'll come back and put it back on the third floor where it goes. Well, I did not know that the silent alarm had called the Sheriff's Department. So here I am, it's me and Stan, and I don't even remember if anybody else was with us, but we're here on the parking lot, and here comes like four sheriff's department vehicles, and they're, they're pulling out with their lights flashing, I'm saying, I wonder what's going on? And Stan said, you've done it again. So they're up here, and they're, they're like, what are you doing? Because it looks like we're stealing the TV. We've got it in his pickup truck, and, we're, and they're like, what are you doing stealing? I said, look, I promise you, I know I don't work here, but I, I'm not stealing this TV. Look, I got a key, and they said they didn't believe me. And finally, I had to call Jim Pritchard, who's the administrator for Central Church. He's a friend of mine. I had to call Jim and get him on the phone with the, the, the deputy so he would believe me. And Stan was one of the first people that got me involved in golf, and Stan's a good golfer, unlike me. And he was one of the first to embarrass me on the golf course. And some of you know where Fox Meadows Golf Course is. I didn't know if this was illegal either. But I trusted my nephew and Stan, and so one night about 1 o'clock in the morning, we decided we'll go in the lake at Fox Meadows Golf Course, and none of us could afford golf balls, so we'll just go in the lake and, and find golf balls, and so what, you walked around in the mud, and you found them with your toes, and then you went down and got them, and I still have those golf balls. I think I'm still playing with them. That's how long ago it was. So Stan has been a dear friend for a long time, and Peter's absolutely right. If, if I have a question or a need, lighting or sound, I just call Stan, and, and he takes care of it. He is a, a dear brother in Christ. We appreciate you, man. All right, Mark chapter 2. You'll turn there. We've been looking at, or we are looking at, in this series, the servant savior, the, the gospel of Mark. And you see the theme verse there, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. Mark 10, 45, direct quote from Jesus Christ. So the first last few weeks or months we've been looking at, in chapter 1, his introduction to the world. He begins his public ministry, and we talked about that. that's what Mark's focus is the public ministry of Jesus Christ, that three-year period.
period of time while he's on the planet, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us going around and showing the world, this is God. This is how God serves. I came to serve and to die, and I am deity. What you're going to see in chapter 2, you're going to transition from his public ministry beginning and being introduced to the world. And, and one of the things we noticed as that begins is that huge crowds are flocking to him primarily because of the miracles he performs, and everybody wants a miracle. So they, they're flocking to Jesus to get their miracle. And yet what he wants them to understand, and we kind of ended with this last week, Look at Mark 1.38, if you will, and then we'll move on. The end of Mark 1.38. For this purpose I have come. In the early part of that verse, I need to go to another town and another town and another town. I need to keep moving and preach the gospel. For this is my purpose. Yes, I can heal where we ended last week. Yes, I can do incredible, miraculous things. I am God. But more importantly... I came to preach, and that word means to herald forth truth, the gospel, the good news of Messiah has come. So what you see in chapter 2, notice the first two words of chapter 2. We'll just read verse 1. And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. So what we're going to see in chapter 2 is Christ's lordship, that not only can I do amazing things, but I am Lord God over the most important things in a human being's life. That I can offer freedom. I can offer forgiveness. I can offer fulfillment in life. I can give to you something you cannot get anywhere else. And one of the contrasts you will see repeatedly throughout this is between him and the Pharisees. You'll see the term scribes, and scribes were people who, and some were Pharisees, but by and large, the scribes worked for the Pharisees to herald out, supposedly, Scripture and write it down and keep it up. And what you will see is, is the contrast. Jesus keeps pointing out, I can offer you forgiveness, but the Pharisees' religion cannot. I can offer you freedom, the Pharisees' religion cannot. They'll put you in bondage. I can offer you fulfillment in life. What the Pharisees will do is put an incredible burden on you. And all of it's based on, from they're, they're saying it's religion, it's God. And I'm saying to you, no, 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 it's not. Let me show you what God is really like. Here I am. Let me show you. So it begins with Matthew 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 6 is where we are in this section of Mark. What you're going to see are five incidents where Jesus intentionally, and please don't miss this because he's trying to make a point, I am Lord God, he intentionally creates a conflict with the Pharisees to point out the fallacy of their religion and the truth of what he offers. Five times, five different ways, you're going to see how Jesus interacts with people to point out his lordship as opposed to what the Pharisees offer. And the message through all of this, what we're going to look at over the next few weeks, is Jesus said, I want you to see my priorities are spiritual, far beyond the physical miracles that I can do. My priorities are always spiritual. And that principle is so relevant still today because so many people 
just want to flock to the guy who says, I can heal you, or I can do this for you. I can do this for you, for you, for you, all about you, whether it's money, wealth, health, whatever it might be. And Jesus said, I am Lord over that. Yes. But more importantly, is my priorities are always spiritual. If I heal somebody, it's for a spiritual reason. If I raise somebody from the dead, there's a spiritual tenor behind it. I'm trying to teach you something, show you something, because spiritual verities, spiritual truth is eternal. Think about one of the greatest miracles Jesus performed was raising Lazarus from the dead. He intentionally waited four days. Because the Jews believe the spirit hung around the body four days. He intentionally waited four days. And he gets there in John chapter 11, and before he raises him from the dead, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me, though he may die, like Lazarus, though he may die, yet he will live. And he who lives and believes in me will never die, spiritually. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And they're all like, wow. Well, what was Jesus' point? I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he's going to die again, physically. But he'll never die spiritually, because he's in me. And that message is so relevant, so true. That is the quintessential, essential message of Christianity, is that Jesus offers something that you cannot get anywhere else. It's spiritual. A doctor might be able to heal you physically of something. Through the medical progress, and for example, I had to go this week. Annually, I go and I get my heart valve tested. That I had open heart surgery 17 years ago. They had, to, they had to replace, not replace, but repair my micro valve. And they put a little ring in there, an angioplasty. And if you don't, want, you don't know anything about cardiology, just let me know. And I'm an expert. So they put this angioplasty ring in my, around my mitral valve to repair it. Well, every year I go in annually and they do an echocardiogram and they look at my valve and to make sure that it's not leaking severely again, that everything's still fine. They were able to save my life. My doctor just found it listed. He says, you've got a heart murmur. You need to get that checked out. And found out I had this issue. And then a, few, a couple of years later, found out it was it had gone crazy. Just through an echocardiogram, he says, hey, man, you got to have open heart surgery. And I said, when? He goes, today, as soon as possible. And they were, they were able to save my life. Now, they saved my life. And then every year I had that test. And then the phone call comes Friday. And there's, you know, we get the phone call, it's that the doctor's office, well, they're telling me the results of the test. Well, your first thing is, okay, is, am I going to be, you know, is it all right? And she said, yeah, everything's fine, nothing's changed. Got but at some point in my life, that call's going to be what? Uh-oh. we got to fix that thing again. Because it's not going to last forever. Either that or I'll, I'll pass away. Now, they were, a doctor, they do some great things, and I love my cardiologist. I got his picture on my wall at home. They talk about Ed Garrett, who did my heart surgery at Baptist Hospital. You go into Baptist Hospital and talk about Ed Garrett, and they all go, mm, mm. He is, they, they literally say he is a god in the surgery at, at Baptist Hospital. He keeps, he has two rooms going all the time. And he's got did my heart surgery. I got two pictures of him up. Now, but who am I trusting for the most important thing? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. So if you drive, you know how churches put up marquees, you know, these little sayings on there, like, I've upped my tithe, up yours, that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, that was like a literal one. 
I didn't make that up. So right down the street, right here in our town, there's one that says what? You've seen it already this week. You've probably seen it 10 times. We're not trusting, something like, we're not trusting the donkey or the elephant. We're trusting the lamb. That's pretty good. I wish I'd made that up. Not whether you're Republican or Democrat, it's whether you know Jesus Christ. Because that's what matters eternally. That's who's sovereign, spiritual things. So here's Jesus' point. As he makes these encounters and he has these incidents with the Pharisees, he wants the people to understand. Get past their focus on earth. Get past their focus on temporal things. Get past their focus on themselves, because that's where it is. They are self-righteous. I'm going to give you righteousness that's eternal, that's from God that will last you forever. So I am Lord. Let's begin with chapter 2, verse 1. Number 1, Jesus is Lord over sin. Over sin. Mark 2, 1. It, and again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, there's that word again, favorite word in Mark, most used word, immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even, not even near the door. And he preached the word to him. And they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they, when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. So what you're seeing in verses 1 through 5 is Jesus forgives this paralytic. And I really want you to focus on this because here it is. We're talking about the lordship of Jesus Christ as God, the second person of the Trinity, God, God the Son. You'll see as we go through how he, how he reminds them of that. I am the great I am. But here's what he's saying first and foremost. I am Lord over sin. I don't care who you are. Going from Adam forward, every man has one great need. Now, we all have many needs, but every man has one great need, and it is to be forgiven of his sins, his or her sins. And the only one who can do that is Jesus Christ. Now, there are a lot of religions. There have been a lot of attempts by man as long as man's been on the planet. He's been creating idols, creating religions, and he still does. To make himself right in his own eyes and in the eyes of others and in the eyes of God is whoever he creates God to be. But the one God, as Francis Schaeffer said, who is there, the God that you can't put in a box, as Francis Schaeffer said, the God who has proven himself to be the I am, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There is no name given among men, no other name given among men, whereby we must be saved. That name, Jesus Christ, the name that is above all names. And his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord through the glory of God the Father, Jesus so through this moment, Jesus is going to teach them, I am God over sin. I can, for, I can give you, I can hand to you by the grace of God a free gift, and that gift is forgiveness. And you've heard me say many times, and I've shared it with a lot of groups over the years, and I, and I think about this a lot because there's so much bad teaching and theology out there. But when you understand what it means to be forgiven, when you understand what it means to be saved, when you understand what it means to be adopted into the family of God, when you understand what it means to be redeemed, whatever term you want to use, 
If God never does one more thing for you, except he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross so that you could be redeemed, so that your sins could be paid for, so that you could have eternal life, so that you could know life, be fulfilled, be set free, have a reason for existence, give you heaven as your possession, and inheritance as a child of God. If he did that, and then just step back and said, I'll never do anything for you again, every day you should still wake up and cry out to that God and say thank you. Thank you. Because that's what matters forever. That's what's eternal. So let's look at the scene again. Unique message. Jesus, verse 1, says he's back in the house. And that's probably, he's at Capernaum. We talked about last week that he's, this is kind of his headquarters for his ministry now around the Sea of Galilee and how big a town Capernaum was. And this is probably Peter and Andrew's house where he had healed Peter's mother-in-law, because it says he's back in the house. Notice immediately, immediately, he's coming from verse 45, chapter, chapter 1, verse 45. He had, because the crowds had gotten so big, he went out into the wilderness, into the deserted places. Notice the end of verse 45. And they came to him from every direction. He tries to go out into Shelby Forest and hide. And they find him. He just goes out into the wilderness just to be alone. And yet, what do they do? They find him. Without Twitter, without anything else, they find him. And man, they flock to him. Again, the miracle worker. Who is, what's this guy about? And so chapter 2, verse 1, and remember, when he wrote this, it didn't have chapter and verse designations. So it just flows right into this next paragraph. And it says, he again enter Capernaum after some days. And we don't know how long it was, probably a, a, a few weeks. He's out in the wilderness. But then he comes back to Capernaum. Notice the end of verse 1. And it was heard that he was in the house. Uh-oh. It's heard that he's in the house, verse 2. Immediately, many gathered together. The fact there were so many of them, they're coming to him from all over. Now he's back in Capernaum where there's all kinds of people, and they hear he's in the house again. And the word spreads, and he gets so many to come to the house that there's not enough room for them. Just not enough room. Notice, notice the end of verse, two, the uh, verse two. Immediately, many gathered together, so there's no longer room to receive, not even near the door. And notice the end of verse two. This is really a cool principle. It says he preached the word to them, and he's drawing crowds everywhere he goes. But here's what I want you to notice: the word "preached" here is a little different. We talked about preach last week. The crowds are coming to him, and he's heralding forth the word of God. Like, a, like, hear ye, hear ye, that kind of thing. That's not what this word is. This is so beautiful because it's so relevant to us, particularly you as you go to work every day and you interact with people. This word here means he was having a conversation with, in the house with them. Notice, he's having a conversation in the house with them, but he's also preaching to them. Do you see that? You may not ever stand up here and open a Bible or in a classroom or in a home and teach a Bible study, but you preach the Word every day, everywhere you go. It's simple ways, sometimes profound ways, but that's what we do. The greatest evangelism that occurs is when you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, just reach out to somebody else meet them where they are, and share truth with them. Love them. We were talking about the help day earlier. 
just walking to the car with those people. I mean, one week I worked upstairs and just walking to the elevator with people with the clothes, that, and the clothes they get are so nice. And you walk in the elevator with them and they're just, one lady said, some of them still have, have like tags on them. And she goes, I've never had anything new like this. It makes you want to cry. But you get to be part of that. Because you get to say, well, we just want you to know we love you. If nothing, if they know nothing else about Christ Church, the people that come to Help Day once a month, what do they know about that place at Bartlett? They know they're going to come there and they're going to get a lot of food, much as possible. It's going to be, and, and they're going to get not clothes that people are throwing out in the trash, but good stuff. And they're going to be treated with love. That's preaching the word where you are. Or maybe it's maybe it's just somebody at work that you know is having a hard time in their marriage. Or, or maybe they've discovered somebody they love is really sick. And you don't do anything but say, I want you to know I'm sorry and I want, I'm going to pray for you. You never know how God's going to do that, what God's going to do with that. So here they are. Jesus in the house, he's just having a conversation with them. In the house with his friends and their friends. And the crowds flock to him. And still he's preaching the word. The little Greek is a conversation of lovely sounds. He just... Can you imagine just sitting down and talking, to, chewing the fat with Jesus? I mean, what a cool deal. So what do you think about the Sea of Galilee? Because I don't know, let's go walk across it. That was a joke. Just to sit down and talk to him. That's what was going on. All the, the crowd flocks to him. He's having a dialogue in the home. Now, so here's what he does. Verse 3, he forgives this paralytic. They come to Jesus, verse 3. They're carrying their friend. There's four guys carrying. There's five of them. They're carrying their friend. The inference here is he's severely paralyzed, probably a quadriplegic, that they're having to carry him here. But what I want you to notice, the Jews would have looked at this man that had the paralysis. I'm talking about the Pharisees, the religious zealots, the self-righteous. They would have looked at this man with the paralysis, the paralytic, that Jesus is about to forgive and to heal. They would have looked at him, and here's what they would have said to him. Some sin in your life has caused this paralysis, and you're not worthy of our time, entrance into the synagogue. You need to stay away from me. You're unclean because you're paralyzed. And these are Jewish people. I love this picture. Because was the paralytic going to get up and go anywhere? And I don't mean this to be crass. Is he getting up and going anywhere so he can see Jesus? What do his friends say? We care enough about you that we'll risk being ostracized. We'll risk a lot. We'll try to get you there. Well, they get there. How big is the crowd? They can't get in the door. They're not getting in the house. So... They're not only willing to take the risk, they're determined. They go up on the roof. The roof is probably flat with thatch. They go up on the roof and do what? Just tear it up. We can't get you to Jesus any other way. We'll just tear the roof off, just like Jesus standing there preaching, and suddenly there's a guy coming, being lowered down in front of you. They're determined. They're going to get their friend to Jesus. Now, I don't want to stretch a point. But I'm going to stretch a point. Are you that determined that you want to take your friends to Jesus? 
And I don't mean that you want to carry them to church necessarily. But do you pray for your lost friends? Do you pray for your lost relatives? I know I'm guilty of, of not, you've heard me share a lot about my two brothers. I'm guilty of not praying for them enough. I try to talk to them when I can, but I don't pray for them enough. People you know that don't know Christ. I guarantee you, we could go around the room and all of you have family members somewhere who don't know Jesus. Do you pray for them? Does it hurt you? Do you agonize over their eternal destiny? Do you think, Lord, do you ask, give me a chance to share the gospel? What about your neighbors? What about people you work with? Again, we articulate that we believe Jesus alone can forgive. But do we live that? I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm saying you're probably like me. You just get so tired of tired, wrapped up in what you're doing that sometimes we forget our priorities. There's nothing more significant than my next door neighbor having his sins forgiven, is there? So I need to pray about that. Pray, Lord, give me a chance to share. Give me a chance to preach the word, even if it's just conversation and lovely sounds. Let them know that I care what Jesus has done for me and how special he is. And I realize, I, I know, not everybody's goofy like me and, and will we'll talk about Christ to anybody. But I also know that if you pray, God will answer that prayer. And you'll see what happens. Just keep praying. Don't give up. These guys did not give up. They, they're doing everything they can. So everybody else except these four guys and their friends, maybe Jesus, Jesus' disciples at this point, they don't know what to think. But all the people in the crowd, because of what they've been taught by the Pharisees, they see the guy and, and his four friends and they're like, ah! What Jesus sees is somebody to eat is about to perform the greatest miracle that's ever performed in a human being's life. And by the way, it's not a healing of paralysis, even though he's going to do that. It's forgiving his sins. And his friends, I just love the picture that they're determined we're going to get into Jesus. Because everybody else saw him as being that his sin, his paralysis, was God's judgment on him for some sin he committed. And his friend said, we just love our friends. And we want to see him. Now, they didn't come to Jesus probably for forgiveness. They came for him to do what? Heal the friend of paralysis. Let's see what happens. They're determined. They're going to be criticized. They're going to have to pay a high cost in a lot of different ways. They're also going to have to pay for a roof. But you know what? They're willing to do it because they love their friend. Verse 5. Jesus saw their faith. And really, it's the faith of the four. He doesn't really know much about the paralytic. But notice what he says. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. I love this picture as well. Jesus doesn't criticize them for interrupting his conversation. He doesn't say, what are you doing? Now they, I mean, the roof is gone, and they're lowering the guy down on the pallet. Jesus doesn't say, whoa, 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 I ain't got time for this. He doesn't criticize them. He doesn't throw them out. He just turns to the guy on the mat and says, your sins are forgiven. This is the first time the word faith is used in the book of Mark. And it'll be important as we go through. But with their faith, faith of the four friends, they brought him to Jesus.
I love, look at verse 5 again. Look what Jesus says specifically. Son, your sins are forgiven you. That word son in Greek means deep affection for a child. I love that. It's a grown man. But Jesus says to him, child, I want you to know I love you. And your sins are forgiven. It doesn't matter how old you are. When God adopts you into his family, you're his baby boy. You're his baby girl. Think how much you love your baby boy, your baby girl. God, God says to this paralytic, come on in, you're in the house now. Not just they lowered you into the house, you're in my house. You're part of my family. Welcome. Your sins are forgiven. He adopts him into his family. And in Matthew's version of this, and we'll look some more of that later, but in Matthew's version of this same event, Jesus says to the, to the paralytic, do not fear, take heart. Because he would have been afraid of the Pharisees. He would have been afraid of the crowd. But Jesus said to him, you don't have to fear anymore. You take heart, my child, that your sins are forgiven. Listen, there is no greater message that we have to share with anybody that God will, will say to them, welcome home, you're in the family, I love you, your sins are forgiven. No matter who it is, Jesus had compassion on him, so he says to him, you can confidently know, you can be assured that you're in the family, welcome, your sins are forgiven. In Greek, it simply means you send them away and you cancel a debt. I was reading about this this week, that word forgiveness in different languages. And when missionaries years ago started uh, going up to Eskimos to share the gospel with them, and they wanted to translate scripture into their language so they could understand it, whatever Eskimos speak, I guess it's Eskimo, I don't know. But when they're going up to them, they could not find a word in their language that would equate to forgiveness. And then finally they ran across a word that meant the following, and that's what they used. And here's what it says in Eskimo, to be forgiven. Quote, I'm not able to think about it anymore. That's the only word they could come up with. But what a great word. Because the, God tells us in his word that when your sins are forgiven, they are removed as far as east is from west, and he remembers them no more. But Satan likes to do what? Keep bringing them up to you. Keep bringing them up to you. and Keep bringing them. You're a loser. What do you, what do you think you're doing? Randy, what are you doing standing up there? You, you thought this the other day. You're just a loser. You know what God says? Those sins are forgiven. I don't remember them anymore. What a great word. And then when I say, I understand it, and I talk to my dad about it. Boy, you know what he said? You're my child. I just don't do that again. Knowing what? Probably going to do it again. You see, that's what grace is. That's what mercy is. And when I'm in the family, I'm what? I'm in the family. I'm in the family. I'm not always going to please my dad. But he's never going to stop being my dad. That's what we have to share with people. So many people do not, again, in Memphis, Tennessee, the buckle of the Bible Belt, they don't understand what Christianity means. They've got some sense of what they think it means but I doubt that they've ever had it shared with them like this a lot I'm not 
talking about everybody. I'm saying a lot of them. They just think it's I'm doing the best I can, or I got to turn over a new leaf, or I got to stop drinking, or I got to stop doing this, I got to stop doing that. God says your sins are forgiven. What did the paralytic do to get his sins forgiven? What did he do? Nothing. He just came to Jesus. And he didn't even do that. His friends did that for him. Jesus knew the heart. What did the thief on the cross do to be told by Jesus, today you'll be with me in paradise? What did he do? Nothing except turn to Jesus and say, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? It's called faith. Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, but with it, you can have everything that God ever intended you to have. Not what you want, but what you should be. He'll give you your needs and some of your wants if he wants you to have them. If he doesn't want you to have them, guess what? You don't need them. So he says to him, your sins are forgiven. They came to Jesus for healing. Please don't miss this. Please don't miss this. Jesus is going to heal this guy. That's why they brought him to Jesus. That's why everybody's flocking to Jesus at this point. But which need does Jesus deal with first? His primary, most important need was forgiveness of sins. He could heal him as a paralytic, but if he doesn't forgive his sins, he's going to die one day and miss heaven. But Jesus forgives him of his sins first. I can almost see the guy's going, look, we worked hard. We brought him up here and lowered him. That's great. You can tell him his sins are forgiven. Hey, come on, man. Do something for us. Are you going to heal him or not? He's also sending a message to the Pharisees, as we, will, we shall see. Who forgives sins? Only God can forgive sins. It's priority. And again, I will say it one more time. Even today, you hear so many people preach this. What's the greatest miracle Jesus Christ ever performed or ever performs today? What is it? It's forgiveness of sins. It's taking you or me from a lost sinner, from an eternity bound, separated from God in hell, to redeeming us and giving us an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven that does not fade away, that's ours, simply because we say, Lord, forgive me a sinner. Man. That's the greatest miracle God ever performs. And when these guys, their whole focus, and I'm not saying a physical healing miracle is not a great thing, it is. But when that's your whole focus, you miss the point of the gospel. It's about spiritual priorities and verities, forgiveness. All right, verse 6. So after Jesus forgives the paralytic, he heals him. He heals that same paralytic, verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Scribes worked for the Pharisees. And they say, verse 7, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, there's that word again, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately, 
Do I have to mention there's that word again? Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I bet they didn't. I bet they didn't. Think about it. Hey, Lord, they got through the roof. Some of them had to know him. He's an adult. He ain't moved in a long time. Jesus said, pick up your bed, get up, and go home. And immediately, he just gets up. I bet he didn't walk down the aisle. I bet he flew down the aisle. Think about it. Not ever able to move or walk. And suddenly, he could do that. Now, was there any doubt Jesus had just performed a miracle? Please want you to notice a couple of things, and then we're done. Notice Jesus' reaction. Verse 8, he literally reads their minds. I love this. You know, they're sitting there, hey, man. And Jesus said, I know what you're thinking. I love that. How does he know what they're thinking? Because he's what? He's God. Now, the situation would lend itself to that because they're scribes. I understand that. They're accusing Jesus of blasphemy because they know only God can forgive sins. And Jesus just told his guys sins were forgiven. So Jesus asked him a couple of rhetorical questions in verse 9. Number one, anybody can say to someone, your sins are forgiven. Right? I can say it. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I can't prove that, right? You can't prove that, right? I just say to you, your sins are forgiven. Notice what Jesus said. Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. You can't verify that. But what can you verify? Okay, I'll show you. Get up, pick up your bed, and walk. Now, is there any doubt that, that I just did that? You can't deny that I just healed this guy, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah. No, of course they can't. But here's his point. Not only can I heal, but I can also forgive sins. So that you will know. Look at verse 10 again. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, I will heal this guy. Because you can verify the healing, and I want you to see it. So he gives them the proof that they're looking for. And he says, get up and walk out of here. Go home. So what he does is prove who he is to the scribes. I don't just say but you may know that I have the power. And the word power in Greek means authority. I have the power to heal. You see it. But I want you to also understand I have authority to forgive. Who's the only one? They just said it themselves. Who's the only one that has the authority to forgive sins? Only God. So Jesus said, okay, just so you'll know, I have both power and authority. That's what sets me apart. So here's what I want to wrap up today. Notice the purpose, verse 9, 10, excuse me, verse 12. He arose, he took up his bed, and he went out in the presence of them all so that they were all amazed. And they did what? What's the next phrase? They glorified God. The purpose of the miracle was for God to be glorified. It's always that way. Whether the miracle is forgiveness of sins 
for a physical healing, God does what he does for, so that God is glorified. One more time with the definition of glorifying. We use it all the time in church circles because it's so relevant here. The word glorify or to glorify means to give a correct estimate of what God is worth. Here's what Jesus is saying. I've just proved to you that I'm God so that you'll understand. They were amazed at the miracle, but they, they got a correct estimate of what God was worth as opposed to what the Pharisees have been telling them about God. You see the difference? Everybody has a belief system. You've heard me say that a million times. But Jesus proved that his belief system is the right one. The correct one. The only one that will set you free. The only one that will forgive your sins. The only one that can do the things that he did. Why? Because he's God. Bow your heads, please. Lord, again, we pause before you as not just God, but as our Father, for those of us who are born again. How special that relationship is, father, child. Care if you're 10 or 110. If you're born again, you're a child. You're God's child. What a father to have, the perfect father. We thank you for who Jesus is, that he makes it possible, Father, that we can have you as our father. I pray we would revel in that as Christians. That we would, we would leave here excited to tell someone they could have their sins forgiven. Not to preach in the, in the way they think preaching is, but to have that lovely conversation Jesus was having. Those lovely sounds that say to people, this is who God is, not who the Pharisees tell you, not who you think. Let me tell you and then show you who God really is. See, we can tell people, and we can also show them with our lives what, who God is. Thank you for that privilege, Father. Thank you. We just ask that you would motivate us to share that forgiveness. And Lord, if there's somebody seated here today who's not a Christian, they would say to Jesus, thank you for dying on that cross for my sins. I need that greatest of all miracles. Please forgive me and save me. We commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.